Welcome to Sake Deep Dive, the Beyond Beginner Sake Podcast, where I, your host, Jim Ryan, Sake translator, writer, nerd, drinker, reader, and my esteemed and wonderful host, Andrew Russell. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Doing all right. We dig into the sake topics that other podcasts just skim the foam off the top of. And tonight we are going to be looking into the wonderful world of Aruten. Before we get into that, Andy, you're in the middle of the brewing season. How's that going? Yeah, it's a, it's a month in, so not quite 100% tired yet, I would say, just yet. But there, there's plenty of time yet. So yeah, <laughs> October, November tend to be okay. Then it starts getting really cold in December and by February, you know, I'm praying the whole thing's over quickly. So, um, so still in the optimistic phase at the moment. So, yeah, well, it's good to hear. I have, uh, I pray that that it goes relatively quickly. Just so everybody's aware, we are recording this in October, so things are just getting started in the sake brewing season here in Japan. The uh, the, the Yamada Nishiki harvest is mostly in here in Western Japan. It's not the best harvest this year, I understand. A lot of hard rain came. Should be some good sake next year. Now, let's get to the topic at hand. As I said, we are talking today about Aruten Sake. Aruten is just an abbreviation of Arukoru Tenka, which means alcohol added. And we also talk about Honjozo. Andy, can you go into the differences? What's the difference between Honjozo and Aruten? So Aruten is basically just a wider description of several classifications, uh, legally defined classifications. So Aruten, as you said, is simply added alcohol. But within that, you have the, the Tokute Mei Shoshu, or special designation sake categories, of which one half of that pyramid that you always see is added alcohol. And from that, you have, I suppose, the entry level for that, which is Honjozo. Honjozo is defined by sake that is made with rice that's been polished to 70%, komi koji, water, and added alcohol. And then above that, you have the classifications of ginjo and dai ginjo. Note that they're missing the junmai part of that. And then everything else outside of that, you would call futsushu, which is not exclusively added alcohol, but virtually always contains added alcohol. So that's the, the legal definitions you know, within this greater description of added alcohol or aruten. Thank you very much. And, and uh, to clarify that term honjozo, if you were going to translate that literally, it would be the, the main brewing or authentic brewing or true brewing. Uh, this term basically came along when junmai was still a fairly rare kind of thing in the whole industry. And so it, it was to set up the idea that honjozo is the stuff that we usually make as compared to junmai, which is the outlier. Obviously things change over time, but right now uh, that's what the term that is in use means. Now, yeah, uh, NADA or the Narasaki Association, they chose to translate the word honjozo as true brew one of the ones you mentioned there. And I believe the translator was none other than Philip Harper. So I tend to use the, the <laughs> true brew translation for Hondozo. Yeah, it kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? True brew, true blue, true, true brew. Aruten is the kind of uh, the common term. 
right? So when people talk about, for example, they want to differentiate a, a ginjo from a Jumai ginjo, they may say Aruten ginjo. It's really rare. I mean, really rare for, for people to say things like uh, Honjozo ginjo. I, I don't know. Andy, in your experience, how does that, like, do people say that? Yeah, I'm sure I read somewhere that technically that is actually the correct term for it because all of that brewing is honjozo within the Tokute Meishoshu classifications. However, I've never heard that. And certainly in a lot of the, the definitions that you see, we just mentioned Nada's definition. They don't mention honjozo ginjo. They just have honjozo and honjozo shu as defined by the 70% polishing and with the, the description that we just mentioned before. Certainly on labels as well, I've I've never seen Honjozo Daiginjo. You you just see Daiginjo or Ginjo. So right. yeah, I'm personally I haven't seen that before. We have this class of sake, Aruten sake, the Honjozo and the Futsushu. It must of course imply that there is alcohol added to the sake post-fermentation or at the end of fermentation on top of what is naturally produced in the monomi through fermentation. And uh, the alcohol that is added, the, the legal sort of descriptions and, and all other things, they use this term jozo arukoru, which we translate as brewer's alcohol or brewing alcohol. That's not a, a very clear term. And if we look at what, what they designate in, inside the laws, Basically, there are a couple of conditions as to what it has to be. It has to be fermented from some kind of sugars, which can also be from the starches in things like grain or potatoes. That's basically saying it can't be synthetically created in a lab. It cannot be distilled over 95% alcohol. That's pretty common. Basically, you, you run stuff through a continuous still long enough, it, it gets really, really high alcohol. It, if it goes higher than 95%, and it becomes some kind of thing that uh, nobody wants to play with anyway. And then that's basically it. Uh, now that 95% number is a maximum. It does not have to be 95% when you use it, which is a topic that gets into some things that uh, maybe we need some some context for that first. That's what's going in when we're talking about Aruten alcohol. Sure. Yeah, the, the majority of the time, they're not going to put in 95% almost pure alcohol into a fermenting mash. The likelihood is they're going to process that down to about 30%. And, and obviously that takes it closer to something like a, a spirit, like shochu, for example. Obviously, that then does have implications for the amount that you're allowed to use, obviously increasing the amount that you're allowed to use. So that's what we were putting into this honjozo. You know, that, that honjozo term didn't come from nowhere. It has some history behind it, it has some tradition. So this, this practice of, of putting alcohol in it is actually a bit older than you might expect. Right, Andy? So uh, do you want to do you want to take us take us on a trip through time? I mean, one of us? one of the biggest misconceptions, I suppose, is that people do often make a connection or an assumption 
that added alcohol relates to the, the war period where there was a lot of alcohol being added to, to sake to, to boost the yield, the Sans Oshu era. That's actually not the case. Aruten goes way back to the beginning of the, the Edo period. Now, you know, that is, you know, that's taking you back until the, the early 17th century. And, and how we know that is through a book called the, the Domo Shuzoki, or should I say a, a brewing manual from the, the early Edo period. Now, a little bit about the book. They don't know who the author is, and they think that it was written in 1687. So you might be wondering, you know, we don't, don't know an awful lot about this reference, you know, how good a reference is it actually? Well, it actually, it's the definitive reference guide for sake brewing in the Edo period. From all the, the textbooks that came before and after, it's considered the most detailed and the most reliable source. What they think is that it was, it was written by a brewery owner in a region called Konoike. Now, Konoike back then was actually very, very significant for sake, although it's just a little village in what is now modern-day Itami. Itami being obviously very, very famous for, for sake brewing. But within that book, it talks about adding a little bit of shochu. It actually specifies 10%, which incidentally is now, even today, the legal amount for special designation sake. You're only allowed to add 10%. But back then, it recommended adding 10%. And just to do a little translation from the book, they say take about 10% shochu and add it into the mash. And what that will do was that that will really firm up the sake and it will improve its shelf life and it will obviously prevent against spoilage, which was obviously a very, very big problem for all sake breweries back, back in that time. The downside, I suppose, would be adding in shochu. It actually specifies that you don't need to worry about that. The, it will come out in the moromi. It will come out in the mash. It will take the mash will will take away these the aroma of, of the shochu. So it's quite detailed. Now, taking that further about how traditional this practice of adding aruten is, in the history of seishu, very important to make the distinction between seishu and other sake, there's generally considered to be three regions that have had a significant impact on the development of sake or seishu. They are nara. The other one is setsu, which I'll come back in a minute and explain what that where that is and the last one is Hiroshima. Hiroshima obviously gave us ginjo production or the, the method of making ginjo sake and Nara gave us huge technological advancements things like pressing and pasteurization but in Itami, Itami was the place that developed things like kimoto, added alcohol obviously like we just said but also importantly filtration and because of that Itami has the biggest claim to being the actual origin of seishu. So when we're talking about whether or not added alcohol is a traditional method, it absolutely is. In fact, it goes right back to the very beginning of when this drink that we now call seishu became as close as possible to what we were drinking nowadays. Obviously, it would have been very, very different in terms of its flavor profiles. It would have been a lot sweeter back then as well the ingredients that, you know, the way of making it would have been slightly different. But that is the origin of seishu, and they were famous, and they developed this method of aruten. One of the things that made Itami such a major brewing center was that uh, the sake that they made was, in fact, drier than had been made before. Um, 
like Andy just said, you know, they, they were, we were making a lot of different styles back then than, than we are today. And they were all really, really quite sweet, apparently. You know, people have done recreations of Edo period re recipes and, and you get sort of ridiculous SMV values of like minus 40 or something. And, you know, there are records going back. Uh, so if, looking at, there was a record called Shuzo Denkiroku. It's another brewing manual from 1771. It's being preserved at a sake brewery in Akita Prefecture. And it also mentions using this Hashira Shouchu method, right? Adding Shouchu to the monomi. And the thing that it says is it makes it better because the sake is drier. Other records mention that Itami sake's popularity is, is based around the idea that the sake was drier because of advances like Kimoto. And this showed you. So it, it's obviously a preservative method, but it is also about flavor. Now, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's important to, to try and put into context how popular this region sake was. This is the sake that was served exclusively to the, to the shogun, what they called gozenshu. Later, sorry, I, I realized I didn't explain what setsu means back when it was provinces before there were prefectures. The area of Setsu is now modern-day northern Osaka, and then it kind of arcs round into where Nada is. And that around that area of Itami, Nada, um, Nada really wasn't much of a region in the early Edo period, but it, it grew to prominence later. But places like Ikeda, these were all producing sake that were based on the original frontrunner, which was Itami and sending their sake to Edu, what they called um, kudari sake. You know, this was considered the absolute best of the best. And yeah, as you say, one of the things that Itami sake rose up that, that slightly different level was the fact that it was a drier style of sake. And so we're, we're talking here about a book written in 1687, or a book published in 1687 that uh, is is looking back at sake brewing styles that developed in Itami from earlier in the Edo period, right? So the Edo period began in 1603, so early 1600s. How long did this last, right? It, it went on for basically 200 something years, right? Um, the, yeah. the records here are a little bit hazy. Uh, I've been asking historians, I've been reading, and I cannot find any hard number for when this usage of shochu stopped. All of the records basically say going into the Meiji era. The Meiji era started in 1868 and into the Meiji, who knows? But what I can say, for example, uh, I found a, an article discussing a Kagoshima sake brewing record from 1878. Uh, the, the record's name is the Shoryucho or written record of distillation right so kagoshima uh, is is down in kyushu which is famous for making shochu shochu is the native distilling tradition for japan right so this shochu that was being added to the moromi had all kinds of names but the name that everyone uses now is hashira shochu or hashira jochu both readings are attested hashira means pillar pillar obviously is a support. So this is shochu that supports the sake that comes out. Shochu, uh, I, maybe I should clarify that, is historically just distilled alcohol. Um, the kanji kind of translates into heated liquor. 
So shochu is, in other words, distilled. And in that record, it talks about making hashira shochu. It literally is like, you know, this is how we make the hashira shochu that we sell to other sake brewers, right? So this is a commercial product. And it's a kasutori shochu. Kasutori means it's made from sake leaves. So after you press sake, you've got this paste of rice solids that's still relatively alcoholic. It typically has about 8% alcohol in it. And you make a shochu from that. And, and, it, and it, in fact, it goes into to detail about how it's made. You mix the sake leaves with water in a big pot, let it set for a few days, then put it into your pot still. Um, you know, this is the, the 1800s. They, they didn't have uh, continuous stills yet. You put it in your pot still with a bit more water. So that's going to bring down that alcohol level quite a bit, probably you know, at least half, so 4% or so. And then you distill it twice. Now, it, it's hard to say exactly how efficient their distillation methods were, and it's hard to say exactly what alcohol they were starting at. But basically, when you distill something like that, you, you triple the alcohol level. Uh, so after the first distillation, let's say it's about 12%. After the second distillation, let's say it's about 35%, probably around 30% which again just happens to be the ABV of the brewer's alcohol that most breweries now use for out of 10 sake. Okay, so 1878, they had an established method for making shochu specifically for adding to sake. And it was a commercial product sold on the B2B market. Now, like I said, it's, it's hard to pin down when this ended. It, you know, it's, it's into the Meiji era. They were selling it on the market in 1878. So we can figure end of the 19th century, uh, probably not too far into the beginning of the 20th century. And now there's something else going on in the market here that might give us a clue as to why they stopped doing this. And it, it's not cut and dried, but I, th I think it's, it's got some uh, potential. So Andy, you're the one who, who brought this up to me. So would you like to talk a little bit about preservatives in sake at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th? Sure. As you say, there the seems to be a gray area. It's between Aruten sake, the Meiji period where, where it stopped, and then the, the war period where it came back in for, for other reasons that we've talked about. According to a book that I've been reading on and off called Kindai Nihon no Sake Tsukuri, the, that, that book talks about what was going on with consumers in the Meiji period. Now, obviously, Japan had just opened up to the world. There's a lot of foreign products coming in. And according to that book, there was, there was actually one of the, the, the products that was coming in in abundance was imitation sake. Um, so it's basically an alcoholic beverage. I don't know how it was made, um, but it was it was brewed specifically to imitate the aromas and flavors of sake, adding things in that are probably not very good for your body. And when people became aware of these imitation sake, there was an immediate kind of backlash against it. It would seem reasonable to assume that would have an adverse effect on Aruten, it's not just rice, water, and koji. There's another element coming in that that could be the reason where this backlash against Aruten sake originated. And another thing that was going on at that time was uh, this German scientist had 
developed a way of preserving sake. Obviously, you know, there's always been a huge problem with sake going bad uh, right up until the modern era. And a German scientist working at a Japanese university recommended using salicylic acid as a preservative. And it, it, it worked, companies took it on. However, uh, it very quickly became apparent that it's actually a poison and you shouldn't be doing that even at low levels. And so the government, in fact, banned the use of salicylic acid. And in, then everybody had to find a new way of preserving their sake. Uh, and that's where the big development came in. A Andy, uh, how does that play out? What comes next is, is basically Gekeikan developed brewing techniques that didn't require the use of these additives to, to preserve the sake. And it's difficult to really pinpoint it as, as a technique. It's really just ferocious hygiene, you know, more than anything else. And of course, pasteurization was known from, you know, way back when Nara sake first flourished, which would have been the Muromachi period. So it's probably not just attributed to pasteurization, but they did manage to, to create a, a set of brewing techniques that they didn't require this uh, salicylic acid to be added to it, this harmful you know, addition to, to sake that sullied it in the, the eyes of the consumers. And that was, I guess, not Fushimi in general, but Geikeikan's big contribution to the sake industry. That was a, a step change, and they managed to really tap into to these more um, health-conscious white-collar consumers that just emerged during the, during the Meiji period. Now, just to put together a kind of timeline of what we're talking about here, a timeline of the rise and fall of Aruten Sake. We start in 1687 with the publication of this Domo Shuzoki, which talks about how Hashira Shouchu can dry up the flavors and preserve the sake. 1771, we have the Shuzo Den Kiroku, which further describes how um, Hashira Chochu can improve sake and, and particularly the flavor. We have that 1858 record of the Kagoshima sake, sake brewer and Shochu distillery talking about how they make Hashira Chochu to sell in the industry. Now then comes the Meiji Restoration. That's the end of the Edo period when Japan suddenly opens up to the world. Right, so from 1868, suddenly we have all of these foreign products flooding into Japan, and one of them is very cheap ethanol. Column stills have been spreading throughout Europe for a couple of decades, and they had a large, very, very inexpensive supply of high-proof alcohol. And uh, just to sort of clarify, earlier Andy mentioned that there was this fake sake being imported. What was being imported was the alcohol, and then in Japan, kind of uh, unscrupulous breweries were flavoring it to make basically artificial sake. Um, they call it mozoshu. Uh, and the same thing was happening with whiskey, in fact. You know, there it was a, a pretty uh, Wild West kind of atmosphere. Now, this issue of preservatives and, and keeping sake from spoiling was always an issue, even with this added alcohol. And then we have some more foreign influence. In 1879, that German scientist that I mentioned earlier, his name was Oskar Korschelt. Uh, he recommended the use of salicylic acid, and he wrote a book about it. The book sold like gangbusters. Everybody started putting salicylic acid in their sake. However, you know, this was also a time of, of science. And uh, as Japan became more cognizant of 
things like uh, chemistry, they realized that maybe wasn't a bad idea. In, in 1904, the government reviewed additives in all kinds of foods and outlawed the use of salicylic acid in sake. The law had a few years to take an effect, but, but basically what was happening is there was this, not only this political backlash, but there was a popular backlash against additives, right? The, the fake sake, the salicylic acid, and, you know, it, it changed perceptions. And particularly then, Kekekan uh, decided they were going to react to this, and they developed that super hygienic bottling system. And when they released that sake, they basically called it uh, additive-free, no, no preservatives. Uh, that hit the market in 1911. So from 16, from the 1650s, let's say, estimated, to 1911, sake had added alcohol, and for a, a short period, it had other additives. From 1911, it was additive-free, basically maybe what we would call Junmai. I'm not exactly sure. So what is that? 200, roughly 250 years, 260 years of added alcohol uh, from 1911, non-added alcohol, just to put that all in, into perspective. Now, obviously, uh, that situation didn't last. Arutin sake came back in a very, very big way. World War II saw a lot of problems on the home front in Japan. Uh, one of the biggest ones was a rice shortage. The government had to find a way to sort of keep that uh, alcohol tax money coming in, support people's morale with booze, but not use all the rice for sake brewing. And the answer that they came up with was Sanzoshu, tripled sake yields by adding a whole bunch of distilled alcohol and then flavoring stuff. For more information on that, you can always listen to our previous episode on Futsushu. But yes, 1940s. So the, the official sort of reinvention date for Aruten Sake was 1932, codified into law as something you had to do or could do in the 1940s. And then after the war, it just became what sake was. It became part of the brewing landscape. So then from there, uh, some major developments in Aruten Sake. Andy, how has Aruten Sake sort of developed since the Sanzoshu days? Well, of course, the obvious thing is Aruten Sake is included in the Tokute Meishoshu special designation collection of premium sake. So it's, it's worth making that distinction. If they are in this pyramid, then they are premium by definition. <laughs> so Honjozo, Ginjo, and Daiginjo are all premium categories of Aruten sake. So that is one thing. What separates them from their Junmai counterpart is just the addition of alcohol. There are no other rules or any, anything else separating them. That is a very, very important distinction to make. People can prefer Junmai or they can prefer Aruten, but they are on a level footing. When you see that pyramid that you, you're, you're very, very likely to see if you do any kind of research on sake, you'll see that they are level with each other right the way to the top. Now, I guess, I guess maybe something that people might be wondering then is if, if this practice sort of came back with Sanzoshu, which is not great sake, why does it still exist at this premium level? Right? What, is, what role is that added alcohol playing? This is the thing. I mean, sake's biggest selling point, to, to, in my eyes anyway, 
is its versatility. You can do so much with sake that you can't necessarily do with other beverages and you can do it in production. And one of them is adding alcohol. It's a fantastic adjustment valve for the brewers. You just have to look around at the pantheon of great toji that practice added alcohol. It comes with all its own set of skills and difficulties and challenges, but it can add a lot of unique characteristics to the sake. When we're talking at the level of something like a honjozo, it's going to produce first and foremost a very, very versatile drink. You know, honjozo, the balance that it gives it, gives it a slightly lighter profile very often, but also gives it a bit more durability. So my definition, my own definition of a brilliant sake has always been one that you can drink it cold, room temperature, or warmed. And honjozo really fits that description very well. And it really is because of the fact that you've added alcohol when you go up the, the level a little bit to Ginjo and obviously much further up to, to Dai Ginjo, then really what you're talking about is unlocking more potential from the aromas. Adding a little bit of brewer's alcohol, and it is a little bit when you're when you're at that level, does release these esters that were prior hidden away. And that is why, you know, the, the vast majority of sake that's submitted to the national sake competitions are Aruten, because the brewers know augments the the aromas which is really what judges are looking for in these competitions yeah i think if if i were going to characterize what uh, the addition of, of jozo alcohol brings to a sake i think it 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 sort of boosts the elegance right it, it, it helps give a, a a silky smoothness to the texture it brings out some of those particularly at the ginjo level those those ginjo caught aromatics in it it makes it I, I want to say it, it makes it more flexible, not in the in the versatility sense, although that, that might also be true, but the sake sort of wraps itself around situations, whereas for a lot of times a jumai is really quite direct and, and hefty and, and straight backed. Yeah, so, so when we add this, as Andy said, there are limits. We, we talked about this a little bit before, but at, at the Honjozo level, in the Tokutemi Shoshu level, you can add up to 10% by weight of the white rice used. But when they figure that, and this is, this is actually a really, really important point. When they figure that, that is the weight of actual alcohol, not the fluid that contains alcohol. So as we mentioned, right, we, we're diluting this 95% distilled alcohol down to 30%. We're not adding 10% by weight of liquid we're adding 10% by weight of alcohol. So you have to do the math and I'm not gonna do the math. I'm not a math guy, <laughs> but but um, yeah, it's 30% of the uh, liquid that you add is alcohol. So what is it? Uh, a thousand kilogram uh, mash, which is the kind of standard size for, I guess, most small breweries. It works out you could add 388 liters if it's 10 percent at 95 we'll not go through the the calculation at the moment but 10 percent at 95 percent abv we then water that down to 30 percent abv then that boosts the amount that you're allowed to add to 388 liters for a, a one ton mash thank you voice of experience that's fantastic Right. And um, as you might imagine, uh, if you're if you're sort of listening along at this point, you've got this basically pure distilled ethanol 
that has been mixed with water and then dropped into a sake mash, there's no sugars or flavors in that. It's just alcohol and water. So that's going to be dry as a bone. Andy, does the voice of experience have, have numbers for that as well? Not, not sure about voice of experience, but like I said before, you know, added, added alcohol is, there, there's a lot of techniques to this. It's not just as simple as adding the alcohol in and, you know, you get to boost your yield and you get to do all the other great stuff that we talked about. When you've watered down that brewer's alcohol to 30%, it still has dryness level or the what they talk about the Nihonshudo or Saki meter value. It's about 52 on the plus side. So you can't just simply drop that into the mash because it's just going to spike the dryness to way over uncomfortable levels. So typically there are, there are two ways that you, you do this and that would be a brewer's decision as to which one is best for them. The first way would be to effectively cut off the, the fermentation early when it's a very, very sweet stage. Now, I have to admit, I've never been involved in this particular practice, although it does happen, I'm reliably informed. So the, the mash would still be at a very sweet level. There would still be plenty of yeast activity and a lot more left in its, you know, in its life cycle before the, the yeast just petered out. But it's, it's sweet. And what you're doing is and at that sweet level, you add in this big lump of dryness, which is the, the alcohol, and that would balance it then out to, to round about the, the kind of level that you're hoping to get. And brewers obviously can do the calculations to so they know almost exactly where it's going to come out. The other way, and the one that I have been involved in, is you let the sake ferment, you know, do its normal fermentation cycle. When you make the decision when it's that the yeast is starting to get weak, and you say, okay, then maybe we've got about two or three days left. And then what you do is you add in that brewer's alcohol. Like I said, you spike the dryness. So to, to, to counterbalance that, what you do, and we've mentioned this in a previous episode, is the use of what they call yodan. So they have sandan jikomi, or three-stage mashing. Yodan is, you've guessed it, the fourth stage. So what you do is about 7 to 15% of the total rice you're going to add that back in, in some way, shape or form. Again, if you listen to that other episode, we talked about some of the, the ways you can do Yodan, but what you're trying to, to get is counterbalance that dryness with a big dollop of sweetness to take it back again to a comfortable level. So that's the two, I suppose, conventional ways of dealing with added alcohol. Absolutely fascinating stuff. It's really eye-opening to think about, you know, some of the reasons that go into these techniques that a lot of us just don't know about outside the brewery. Like I, I had lots of yodan sake and I just thought, oh, they're trying to make it sweeter. I never really thought about why or how or what, what kicked that off. So it's absolutely fascinating. And now I, I know that a lot of people have ideas about Aruten Sake and, and particularly, you know, they, they consider what is this stuff that, that they're putting in? Like I said, it's, it's this basically pure ethanol. It's been run through a uh, continuous column still until it's uh, up to 95% pure. What's left is, is probably atmospheric water and maybe a few oils. Now, it is true that the majority of this brewer's alcohol is imported. It's made from left off stuff from the sugar trade. It could be made from corn. Um, there are, however, some new entries into this that 
that I think is going to take a little bit uh, stronger hold in the industry. There are some companies that are now producing distilled alcohol domestically uh, from rice. And in fact, there is a, a company in the Keating Group called Daiichi Alcohol, which literally is just number one alcohol. It's making brewer's alcohol from Yamada Nishiki. They're making it from the milled powder that's left over after milling, milling it for sake brewing. And uh, they are processing it at a an industrial distilling facility that's actually really, really close to where I am right now. It's like a, it's like a 30 minute drive from my house. So, you know, I'll be visiting there. So when we're talking about this stuff, it is an industrial product, but then so is lots of other stuff that, that goes into sake. However, there are still, and, and this is the, the, the part that's, um, that's really, really fascinating to me is there, there are still sake on the market that use honkaku shochu, that use that kashira shochu method. Right, they, they they have a kasutori, they have a sake lees shochu or a rice shochu that they add to their sake in the old way. One of them is <laughs> one of them is is like a supermarket sake. Yeah, a fantastic one of that as well. I mean, mo- most likely our listeners have heard of this because it's, it's an incredibly famous brand of sake, but maybe they haven't seen the one that has specifically hashira shochu uh, right. added to it. So. Yeah. So yeah, those delightful little yellow cans, the Funaguchi, which is Honjozo anyway, the yellow can. If you get the black can, that's the slightly rarer one. But you still see it in oh, yeah. some of the bigger supermarkets in Japan. Eon um, has Aeon, it not too far yeah. from my house. Yeah. Then yeah, that one is made by adding shochu and it specifies that on the label. It says Kasutori shochu right there. And there, there are some others that are more sort of dedicated to, to kind of connecting to that history. Like uh, the, the, the Kikusui Funoguchi Nama cans, I think are, they're a standard product. Like they make it every year, but some other companies have made one-offs. There's a Shimane prefecture brewery called Miyako Nishiki that makes a uh, Koshiki Jozo Hashira Shochu. So you do see these then sometimes as these sort of callbacks to the old ways of, of using Kasutori Shochu. So, you know, it's a complex and, evolving modern market that has lots and lots and lots of facets, but it all comes down to this idea that there is a reason that people still add alcohol to sake. And the, the reasons are multiple and all of them are valid. And I, I, I personally am glad that, that, that people still is. You know, I, I talked to the Toji Kuramoto at Toyobijin, uh, Sumikawa Toji, and he still makes Aruten Ginjo and Dai Ginjo. Most of his stuff is Junmai, Dai Ginjo, and Ginjo, but he does still make an allergen. And I asked him, you know, are you, are you planning to go pure auto, to pure Junmai? And he said, no, no, no. Why would I take that option away from myself? When I, when I make a tank of sake, I can add up to, he said, basically up to 400 liters of this fluid containing alcohol. And if you consider that in one liter increments, that's 400 different ways that I can adjust and play and, and deal with this tank of sake, why would I tie my hands like that? It's something that I can have the choice to do. So I keep that choice ready. And yeah, the, I, I personally, yeah. yeah, this is a very important point to, to make, you know, the Honjozo obviously gets a lot of bad press. It's a shrinking segment of the market. I believe the only shrinking segment of the market pre pre COVID 
you know, of the Tokutemi Shoshu classifications. And a lot of that does come down to, you know, this misconception of Sanzoshu and Aruten being one and the same thing, which, as we've hopefully talked about, it, it, it isn't. Adding alcohol is a very, very important part of the, the brewer's craft. It's, it's a skill. It's a, it's a very important skill. And it's a historic skill as well, hence the reason they gave this yeah, they called it honjozo or true brew. So yeah, as you said, this is this is just one more tool that brewers have at their disposal. And to me, this is why sake is so great. You can do so much and control so much in the production phase that you can't do with other beverages. And adding alcohol is a very, very influential one. You can really change the the profile of a sake. If you think of something like a jumai, if you do an added alcohol to that jumai, you've got two completely different products, and one is not superior to the other one. They're different enough that they're, they're differentiate from one another. All right. So I think this is an excellent time to, to get more specific. Let's let's make some recommendations. Do you have a recommendation for an outstanding Aruten, Andy? I do. And this week, or sorry, this month, I should say, it was really easy because when I thought about the recommendation, one sake just popped straight into to my head and it's from possibly Japan's most famous brewer if that tells you anything about what he feels about Aruten Noguchi eh, Naohiko Saki Institute and it's their standard honjozo it's about twice the price of a, a typical honjozo and because honjozo is actually quite a, a reasonably priced product this was about twice the cost of that but I argued in one of my blogs that I still thought it was too cheap my, my definition, like, like I always said and what I mentioned earlier, that what separates a, a great sake from the, the good stuff is the ability to, to drink it warmed, chilled, or at room temperature. Now, that bottle that, that I bought, I bought it from Ishikawa back in the, in the spring. I did absolutely everything to that sake. I had it across all different temperature ranges, I was drinking out of ceramics. I was drinking out of, and this is the big, you know, the, the big reveal. I actually drank it out of the Riedel gym my glass, and it was still fantastic. I hope Riedel don't sue me or the, the, the glass didn't explode. <laughs> yeah, it didn't. It didn't self destruct. Happy to report, but it just tasted amazing, but different in all these different vessels, all these different ranges. It, it was rich, but it didn't cloy. It had been aged as well, so. I'm informed by one of the members of staff that the Toji himself recommends aging that sake, but I was lucky enough that the shop that I bought it from had done it for me. And also the Naohiko Sake Institute do that for you as well. So they age it for about a year, but it was just superb. You know, I'm waxing lyrical, but if there was a, a picture in the, the dictionary of sake, then that sake should be there. That's how um, good, I, good I thought it was. So that's my recommendation. Well, it's a fantastic recommendation. Um, I mean, it's it's uh, it's kind of a <laughs> hard to argue. <laughs> that's probably the best honjozo in Japan. My my recommendation is a local brewery that almost no one is going to have heard of, but if you get the chance, I definitely want you to try it. It's a brewery called Nakashimaya Shuzojo in Shunan City. They make a lot of kimoto. But the one that I am recommending today is a Tokubetsu Honjozo. And I, I don't want to say it's every bit as spectacular as, uh, as the Noguchi Naohiko, but 
again, any temperature you want to drink it at, uh, any situation you want to drink it in, uh, meal sake, party sake, sitting on your back porch watching the sunset, thinking about life sake. It's just this smooth, textured, uh, fully flavored, but not cloying, uh, delicate, but still satisfying sake that it, frankly is, is, is one of those sakes that could easily be an everyday drinker. And I, and I do mean every day, no, no matter how hot it is outside, no matter how cold it is outside, it's there for you. And uh, I, I think that's what a, a proper honjozo is for. Now that's leaving aside, of course, Futsushu. Futsushu is also uh, usually aruten, and we did a whole episode about how great that stuff is. So there you have it. Those are our recommendations. Our takeaway today is this. Andy said it, and I'll say it again. Aruten sake is just another part of the wonderful, beautiful, fantastic rainbow that is sake today. It's not some kind of an aberration or an impurity. It is simply another style of sake that has a lot to recommend it. Give it a shot. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. That's your choice. Tastes are tastes. But don't dismiss it. There's nothing wrong with Aruten. There's a whole lot right with it. Anything to add, Andy? My only takeaway from it would be Again, the evidence is out there. There are numerous great added alcohol sake out there, two of which we've just mentioned in the recommendations. Try it and see what you think for yourself. Thank you very much. Well, that is it for this episode of Sake Deep Dive. Thank you again for listening. Uh, if you liked what you heard, I would. we both would really appreciate it if you left us a review on uh, iTunes, which I think is the only place you can review podcasts at the moment. You could also share with your friends, check out other things that Andy and I do. I, Jim Ryan, am on Twitter at Jim, that's J-I-M underscore D underscore R-I-O-N. I also have a sake website at yamaguchisake.com. Andy. You can find me, obviously, at dot originsake.com and the website has all my various social media channels and links to there and obviously a contact form and but also don't forget you can check out our own website www.sakedeepdive.com thank you very much if you have comments questions or would like to suggest a topic please send us an email the address is sakedeepdive at gmail.com all one word our theme song is from Lotus Lane by the Loyalist, available under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. Have a great evening. Come by. Come by.